about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Stole the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all his precepts are trustworthy. They are steadfast forever and ever, done in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Good evening, my name is Timothy, if I haven't met you before. The second reading tonight comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. You can find that on page 1136 of your pew Bibles. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17 on 1136. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have, been, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, is in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves we will not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, 
When you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. May we bow our heads in prayer. Oh Lord, bless us, I pray, this evening. Be with us as we open your word. May my words be your words. May my thoughts be your thoughts. And may all that transpires this evening be to your glory. For Jesus' name's sake we ask it. Amen. If you have your Bible open you, uh, at that passage which has just been read to us, uh, you might like to follow along uh, as I take you through it uh, this evening. You will know, of course, that for some weeks now we've been going through a series uh, on uh, 1 Corinthians. You may not have seen me before, but I, go to, I come to the morning service at St. Stephen's. It's a more select crowd. Um, and uh, so I have been following uh, along, and I'm aware of what has been going on. Uh, and uh, we're in, we've now reached chapter 11. Uh, and some of you may have realized by now uh, that the Corinthian church was full of problems. Uh, that's why we have the letter. Uh, it's a curious thing when you think about it, that uh, if, if the Corinthian church was okay, uh, we wouldn't know anything about it, uh, because Paul wouldn't have had to write to it, uh, and so we wouldn't be here tonight looking at what was wrong in that church nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, why was the Corinthian church in such difficulties? Well, the basic problem, of course, was that it was full of people. When you have people, you have problems. Uh, this is just a fact of life, you see. If, uh, if you want to have uh, you know, peace and quiet, close the door, and put a sign up saying, you know, no service today or whatever, uh, or back shortly or something like that, and just ensure that nobody ever comes in. You know, that way you, you can live in peace and quiet and you won't have any difficulties. The Corinthian church, in many ways, uh, was experiencing growth. It was a big city. Uh, it had a lot of uh, different types of people in it. Uh, and these people were coming into the church. Coming into the church in those days was a rather different experience from what it is now. We've lived for better or for worse, with nearly 2,000 years of what you might call Christian civilization. Now, I know we can sit and argue as to how Christian it may or may not have been uh, or is, and many of us are concerned that the Christian heritage that uh, we have uh, is rapidly disappearing, and that may be true. But compared to what was going on in the ancient world, uh, to become a Christian today is relatively easy. Uh, relatively easy because it means slotting into a way of life, a system of beliefs which has been around for a long time and however criticized it may be uh, by some people uh, and however uh, perverted it may be by others who simply don't uh, live up to the standards, it is nevertheless a recognized phenomenon in our society. That was not true in ancient Corinth. To become a Christian was to become weird. Uh, it was to take yourself out of the mainstream of ancient society. It was to join a sect 
which nobody knew anything about. Uh, I suppose a few people would realize that it had something to do with Jews, uh, but Jews were never very popular anyway, so why would you do that? And, uh, you know, the whole thing uh, was a little bit strange. It was difficult, of course, for those who joined the church because they had to work out a new way of life. They had to work to decide what the boundaries were. What makes a Christian? Uh, you see, why? how is a Christian different from other people? And really the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, is about this. It's about the Christian life. You see, how to live as a Christian in a world which is alien uh, to the belief that you hold. Now, increasingly, of course, as I said earlier today, uh, we are going back to that situation. We haven't got as far uh, along the path as uh, some people might think, but we're certainly heading in that direction. And I think, in a way, this is a good thing. It's a good thing because it makes us, as Christians, think more seriously about what we believe, about why we believe it, and above all, about what we are prepared to sacrifice, what we are prepared to give up uh, in order to maintain the principles that we hold. Because it seems to me that the big challenge we face today is this. How can I be a Christian? How can I live as a Christian in a world which may pay lip service to Christian values in some way or other? You know, they'll let you have Christmas Day off or something like that. But when it comes to uh, daily practice, when it comes to the way you think and the way you act, Christianity is just as alien today as it has ever been. And uh, it is as hard today to live up to the principles uh, that we profess uh, as believers in Christ as, as it always was. We aren't helped in this uh, by the fact that we are very ordinary people. Uh, the church is not a select body uh, of uh, people who have been chosen by experts uh, in order to be uh, some kind of outstanding group of people. We're not like an Olympic team, uh, you know, which has been cho uh, chosen specifically for its particular talents uh, and equipped and funded and so on in order to be superior, in order to be different to the rest of the world. How do I know this? Well, I know this because Paul said this to the Corinthian church. If you go back to the beginning uh, of uh, the letter, in the first chapter, Paul says to the church, he said, look around you. Look at the people sitting around you. He said, there are not many rich people, there are not many famous people, there are not many powerful people. And then he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now, how many churches do you know put that on their notice board? You know, how many of us advertise ourselves as the foolish people of the world? And yet, this is what we are. You see, we have been chosen by God. We have been taken out of the, the world around us, and we have been brought together to be a new and different kind of people. We don't have particular talents. Uh, we haven't been chosen because we're more intelligent than other people or because we're more honest than other people or anything like this. We're a ragbag of different types of people who've been brought together. 
And God has done this. Why? Because he wants to show his power in our midst. I mean, if we were all sort of, you know, alpha male types, you know, A1 sort of Olympic gold medalists and everything like that, um, God might feel he didn't have a whole lot to do, uh, you know, uh, to, to make us any better than we are. But because we're the foolish things of the world, uh, because uh, we're not the sort of people uh, that anybody would choose necessarily, uh, this gives God much more scope, if you like, uh, for activity uh, in our lives which will glorify him. That we as a community exist, we are who we are, and we are what we are because of the way he has worked in us. And when we read this letter to the Corinthians, what we are reading is how God is forming and choosing and molding these people into a fellowship, into a community which will be a light in the world to glorify him. And it's at this point that you and I connect with it. In chapter 11, uh, we come to the heart of the matter. Uh, the earlier chapters in 1 Corinthians deal with different problems that individual people had. I mean, some people were confused about baptism, some people were confused about marriage, some people were, you know, they, they were confused about Judaism and what they could eat and not eat, and there were all these issues. Uh, but they were particular problems that individuals had. What we meet now uh, in, the, in this chapter is something that was going on in the church as a whole. Because when the church came together to meet as a fellowship, it was chaos. They would come together on a weekly basis around a fellowship meal. And this wasn't working. Some people were rushing to the front. They were taking all the food. Other people were left to go hungry. Uh, there, was, there was no obvious order in what they were doing. Now, this was very important, of course, because this meal, which they were uh, celebrating, uh, supposedly, sort of coming around, was actually at the very heart of their identity as a community. It wasn't a social occasion. They may have had that dimension to it. Yes, all right. But that wasn't the reason why it was there. The meal was there because Jesus Christ, the day, the night before he was betrayed, the night before he, he went to his death on the cross, gathered his disciples and taught them this thing, gave them instructions as to what they were to do as a community after he died, rose again, and went to heaven. And what he did was he picked up bread and he tore it in half and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup of wine and he said, poured it out and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you. You see, drink this in remembrance of me. And he told his people, his disciples, when you go out, when you preach, when you teach, this is what you must do. This is what you must do as a witness to me until the end of time. The meal which Jesus instructed them to, to repeat and to, to put at the center of their worship was not 
a memorial service in the way that we would think of this today. Some people use that terminology, uh, but it's a little bit misleading uh, because memorial services are things organized by other people after somebody has died. And this is not what Jesus was doing. It was a deliberate part of his own preaching and teaching ministry. It was part of his message. And it was meant to convey in visible terms what his message was. And what was that message? What was Jesus really all about? What he was trying to tell his disciples was that he had come into the world to pay the price for their sins. He had come into the world in order to rescue them, in order to buy them back, to redeem them from the life which they had been living, and in order to make them fit for life in eternity with him in heaven. How do you do this? You and I are not suitable for eternal life. We don't really belong in heaven. No, uh, we're not adapted uh, to that environment. And why not? We're not adapted because we are sinners, because we have turned away from God. You see, it's not so much the fact that we, we'd have to die and, and uh, have a different kind of existence uh, in heaven. I mean, this is possible. But we are cut off from God in a much more radical way. We are out of tune. We are out of relationship, out of fellowship with him because we have turned into ourselves. We have made ourselves our own God. Uh, we don't need him in our lives. We don't want him in our lives. And this was the challenge. This is why God sent his son into the world to do something about this. Why did God do that? We are told in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, verse 16, which is one of the few verses that most people seem to know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the only answer that God gives us to this rather surprising uh, question. Why does God want you and me to live with him in eternity? I just challenge you to think about this for a minute. Imagine that you are God living in heaven where everything is nice and, you know, everything is just perfect and so on. And somebody proposes to you that you should open the door to a lot of sinners what would you say to that? You know, would you want people like you and me in your nice home? You know, would you open the door to these people? I mean, even if they're refugees or whatever. I mean, no, you wouldn't. You see, you may say you would, of course, because you're sitting here and you know that's the right answer. Uh, but uh, if it came down to it, if you came down to actually doing it, you would probably say, no, thank you very much. We're happy as we are. We'll just leave it as it is. 
uh, we don't need people like that up here. And especially if the only way you could get them was by sending somebody, sending your son, in, in the case of God, into the world in order to die so that these people could be prepared to come to live in heaven, that is a very hard thing to ask. It is a very heavy price to pay. For what? For you. For me. You see, when I think about my faith, when I think about God, this is the thing that always bowls me over. Why does God want me in heaven? What have I got that he hasn't got already? You see, why should he put his love on me? What, what, what does he see in me that he wants? And this is a mystery. I don't know. You see, there are times when I get up in the morning and I kind of wish I could get rid of myself, you know, because I'm just a pain, really. And, and the older you get, the more of a pain you are um, in, in different ways. And, uh, you know, you think to yourself, well, really, you know, I, I, I kind of like to get out of the body, just go away and cease to exist and not have any more problems and so on. I'm not deeply in love with myself sometimes. I mean, the feeling does go away, it's true. But uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want to give you the impression that it's always like that. But... But you know what I mean. I'm aware of this. And I think to myself, what does God see in me? And of course, if I think this about myself, how much more am I going to think it about you? Because what does God see in you? You know, obviously something that I don't see. <laughs> and something that, that most of you probably don't see either. You see? And yet he does. You see, God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son into the world to die for you. Do you realize what that means? Can you begin to grasp this? You see, can you understand what is happening here? Why Jesus takes this bread and he says to his disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. He said, this is the suffering. This is what I am going through. I am being torn apart for your sake. I am taking the punishment on myself which you deserve. You're the people who have sinned. You're the people who've turned away. I, not me. You know, I don't have to die for this. I mean, I, you know, I've got other things to do. I mean, I don't have to come into the world and die for you, uh, for myself, rather. Uh, I mean, I haven't sinned uh, against my father. I'm doing his will. That's why I'm here. But I'm, my body is going to be broken. My body is going to be destroyed for your sake. This is the punishment which I am taking on myself for you. And then this uh, uh, wine which is poured out, the blood, represents my life. Jesus said, this is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood that takes away the sin, that pays the price for the sin, uh, that gives me a new life in him. And as I take this into myself, I am united with him that his life becomes my life. I can't become a better person than I am already. Uh, I mean, I can't change in this way. Uh, but I can be united with Christ. I can have his life in mine. Uh, as Paul said to the Galatians, you look it up for yourself, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, what did he say? He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But not I. Christ lives in me, the hope of glory. My life is 
is his life. His life has given me new life. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. See, this is the heart. This is the, the, the message. This is what the gospel is all about. And he said, I want you to take this until the end of time to repeat this, to, to show this, to demonstrate this, because this is what I have come to do. Now you might say, well, why this? You see, well, could there not be some other way uh, that God could have chosen? Well, of course, I'm not God, and how can I answer that? Uh, God is sovereign. God can do what he wants, and I'm sure there are many other things he could have done. This is a, uh, not a worthwhile question to ask. We don't say, well, could God have done something else? We say, this is what God did. This is what he has done. This is what he has given to us. And we try to understand what the reason is. He's given us this act, this act of taking bread and taking wine into ourselves as a reminder that our faith is not just an idea. You know, the world is full of ideas, people who think, uh, and they construct things in their minds. And some of these constructions are very beautiful. Some of these constructions are very profound. Some of these constructions uh, may even have some kind of practical relevance uh, to the way ordinary people live. I mean, who am I to say that they're not? Uh, but idealism, you see, thinking of philosophies and all this, this is something that we have. It's given to us in our minds, our, our, our rational minds can develop all of these things. But Christian faith, while it doesn't deny this, I mean, we have theology, we have a way of thinking, we have a, a, a plenty for our, to occupy our minds, is never limited to this. Christian faith is a transforming experience. It's not just something we think. It's something that changes the way we act. It's something that penetrates deep down inside to areas of our lives of which we are not personally aware. How much of ourselves do we really understand? Not much. I mean, there are people who come up with figures, you know, they, they produce some sort of, they always have maybe 5% or 2%, I don't know, I don't know where they get these ideas from. But there's an awful lot that goes on in us that we don't really grasp. It's too deep, you see. We don't understand our own selves very well. But God does. And when God comes into your life and into my life, he comes in to reach those parts of our life of which we are not personally aware. You see, this is what dying and being born again is all about. You see, it's a total experience. It's a complete change. Not just something that we can understand or something that we can absorb, but something that goes way beyond that. And taking bread and wine is a symbolic representation of this. And this is what I think we have to try to grasp, you see, because we take this into ourselves as a symbolic representation, as a reminder that God wants to penetrate us 
it go into places that we cannot see or understand for ourselves. I said this morning, those of you who are here, I've never actually seen my stomach. I know it's not very far away. Um, and I feel it, and it has a powerful influence over my life. But it's something I've never actually seen. I just put things into it and, and hope that everything's going to be okay. And so this is a picture. You see, it's a very useful picture of our spiritual lives because there are things in our spiritual lives our spirit, we haven't seen. We haven't really understood. But we take on board. You see, we feed ourselves on the Word of God. We feed ourselves on Jesus Christ. Uh, we want to be more like him. We want to enter into his life more fully. And he penetrates. He goes down into us, into places that we are not aware of, and he changes us. He makes us into new people people who are fit for his kingdom. That is what he is doing in you and in me, whether we are consciously aware of it or not. And this is why the apostle, you see, in writing to the Corinthian church, focuses very much on this meal and on the way in which it is to be approached. And he says to us, he says to the people in Corinth, Try and examine yourselves. Test yourselves. You see, when you see this, do you understand what is going on? And this is the challenge for us. Because in a few minutes this evening, we are going to share this meal together. Now, what are we going to do? You see, what does this mean to you? Does it mean anything? You see, is it just something that you're doing because, well, you know, we sang a hymn, we had a prayer, we listened to somebody talk for a few minutes, goodness knows what he was saying, and, uh, you know, we just have to get through all of this, uh, and, and this kind of bread and wine thing, well, that's, you know, that's the next item on the agenda, we'll get through on the program, we'll get through it. Is this the way you, you are thinking about it, just one more thing uh, that we have to do? If that's the way you think, you've completely misunderstood why we are here. You've completely misunderstood what the central purpose of our belonging together is, which is to show the Lord's death, to show the way to heaven, to show what Jesus has done for us. And when you take that bit of bread, and when you take that wine, you are taking into yourself, you are claiming for yourself the death and life of Jesus Christ, new life of Jesus Christ. And we do this because what is eternally true, what is there in heaven, what will never change, has to be applied to our individual lives. Now, why is this the case? When you become a Christian, when I become a Christian, what happens to us? We enter into a new kind of relationship with Jesus. But, of course, we have to grow in that relationship. It's not all handed to us on a platter. Now, there may be some people, of course, uh, who get there quicker than others. I mean, the thief on the cross, for instance, who professed faith when Jesus, uh, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, he didn't have much of a future ahead of him. 
All right. But that's an exceptional case. You see, most of us have to live for a time in this, in this world. And the life that you're living now, the life that I'm living now, is a preparation for the kingdom of heaven. This is where we're going. Jesus said you are to celebrate this meal, you are to do this, you are to proclaim this until he comes again. It has a purpose. It has a forward-looking thing about it. Because in your life and in my life, there are things that we have to grapple with. There are things, ways in which we have to grow into a deeper experience with him. And you know, a lot of people, this is where we have trouble in our Christian lives. We have trouble because we don't face up to this. We don't realize uh, that there are things in us which still need dealing with. We think, I'm born again, I'm a Christian, I'm, you know, uh, I, I sort of walk around shouting hallelujah all the time. I hope not, but anyway, you know, some, this picture that you have uh, of everything is fine and dandy. Uh, when in actual fact, uh, most of us are dealing with, with problems in our lives, problems that we maybe find very difficult to share with others, not least because we think that other people think that we shouldn't be having them. You know, Other people's problems always seem very trivial uh, to us, but they are real issues. They are real difficulties that you have to grapple with. We all do. There's always something. We're not perfect. There's always something in our lives uh, you know, that we're struggling with, something that we have to, uh, to grasp, something that we have to give to Jesus, in effect. We have to let him work on that thing uh, in our lives. Now, it's different for different people. I mean, we could be here all night listening to, uh, to, your, to, to each other's troubles. I don't want to do that. Don't tell me your problems. I won't tell you mine. Uh, you know, let's just take that to God, all right? But this is what I want you to do tonight. This is my challenge that I'm handing over. Try and examine yourselves, says Paul. When you come to eat this, do you discern in the bread, do you discern in the cup the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to you? Do you hear the voice of Jesus coming into your life, saying, I have come into your life to deal with this? Will you take the problem? whatever it is that's on your mind, whatever it is that's bothering you at the moment, whatever thing it is that's blocking your way, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but you think about this. You see, how, what, where do you need to grow? Where do you need to develop in your own walk with God? And can you bring that to the foot of the cross tonight? Can you give that to him, that as you take that bread and as you take that cup into your life, can you say, Jesus, you want to reach into me. You want to get down inside me and make a change. You want to take that burden away from me. We sing about it. We want to now make it real in your experience. If you can do that tonight, if you can do that as we gather around and share in this meal, then you will be fulfilling the command that the apostle has made. Try and examine yourselves. Make sure that you know what you're doing when you take this cup, when you take this bread. Let Jesus Christ work in your life. It's not the bread and the wine that does this. It's not some kind of magic, you know, some kind of medicine that will cure you. No. But it's a reminder to us 
it's a check, it's a, it's a kind of check-up, you said, point. A point where you are forced to face the reality and say, I need Jesus to go deeper into my life tonight. And that's what I challenge you. That's where I leave you. And as we come around the table, as we come to this wonderful celebration now, make that real in your life. And if you do, then you will see why Jesus gave this to his disciples, why he made it central to his proclamation, and why it is so important for us that we should grow one step at a time closer to the kind of people that he wants us to be and that we will be in eternity with him. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.